Okay, we are back for episode 25 of the Corporate Real Estate Insider Podcast. We all had a nice Thanksgiving, and we are excited to be recording another episode here just after the break. Brian, let's start with you. I know you have an interesting story uh, and conversation that tenants all around the country are having with their landlords. Let's go. Thanks, Tucker. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty interesting. So we've been talking a lot about how landlords are in a difficult position, but let's flip it to the landlords that are well positioned, the ones that don't have debt issues, but do have lease up issues. And what we're seeing, and this is a particular situation that I can describe, but we're, what we're seeing is a well capitalized landlord that owns the building for a long time and has about 50% vacancy in the building. So what they're doing is they're initiating a construction project to upgrade the building. So they're upgrading windows, they're upgrading the lobby, they're upgrading the fitness center, all great things for tenants, right? But if you're one of the, and this is where it gets to be something that's going to be happening nationally, if you're one of those existing tenants in the building, you're going to have to live through potentially years of construction. Your lobby is going to be shut down. Your fitness center is going to be shut down. Your cafeteria is going to be shut down. And what is your recourse, right? Um, usually nothing if the lease is not very specific around that. But what do you, what can you do and how can you mitigate the disruption to the tenant? So, um, you know, in this particular case, the answer is really nothing. You have to live with it. And um, it's one of the, um, I think, the downsides of, of being a, um, you know, a tenant today with landlords that are going to, going to need to reinvent themselves and really reinvent their buildings to be able to attract new tenants. And who's going to suffer is the tenants that are stuck in place, usually at higher rents because the market they transacted in was higher. Um, and also just living with a construction site for a long time. Yeah, that's also true for the buildings that have now traded at some steep discount to prior pricing, 30 cents in the dollar in San Francisco, some examples. And so suddenly those landlords are in a position to reinvest in the asset to make it competitive. So you bring up a really good point. I'll add one other wrinkle to that to keep in mind is when is that expense occurring? Imagine you go into the building um, in anticipation of all that. But if that if that occurs the second year of the lease, that's not in your base year. That's a pretty significant capital investment. And you're going to be the tenants in the building are going to be footing a significant portion of that if it's not in the base year. I think that's very important to look at. So some of those improvements can certain ones can be passed through, usually um, over the useful life of the improvement on the capital side, right? So you have to watch out for that. And that's you know that's if your lease is. Um, is structured properly and the improvements are done in a way that adds value or reduces cost. That's a standard in the lease that's probably not going away. But the certain other ones, like lobby improvements um, that are above, you know, above a standard for what you signed up for, could cost significantly more than what you anticipated. And are they could not, they may not be. Um, something that you should pay for because they're to attract new tenants. Uh, even though it's something that you're going to utilize, it wouldn't have been done unless there's significant vacancy in the building. So there's going to be a push-pull there and something certainly companies need to take a look at in their operating expenses on an annual basis. So can I ask a question? Do, do you all, um, this is a little bit of a uh, rabbit hole, but it's worth going down, uh, this concept of um, 
um, maintenance, repair, and replacement, where I'm constantly saying, look, there's no, we shouldn't be paying to replace the building elements. That's what we pay you rent on is a, a building today. If we're both paying you rent on the building today and allowing you to pass through the cost of replacing the building, aren't we paying for the building twice? And yet it's fairly common to see repair and replacement included as an operating expense. Um, I try and fight it. Yeah. I, I mean, you got to look at it two ways, John, because sometimes it's less expensive to pay for the replacement of an asset and the annual depreciation of that asset over the useful life than it is for the landlord to repair it. So think about an HVAC unit that's 20 years old that's costing two, three, four X what the depreciation of the useful life cost would be on a capital basis. So I, I've been running situations where we've had to force landlords because if you have a building that's 50% occupied, they're not going to pass through the total cost. It's only your pro rata share. They're going to eat the vacancy because the tenant that's not in the building yet is not going to be charged back for for improvements that were done to attract them to the building. So what we're going to start seeing is landlords not doing capital repairs. They're going to start to try to try put capital replacements. They're going to try to repair everything because they don't want to carry the vacancy side. The other thing that they're doing is they're trying to use as the denominator as the occupied space for the depreciation of the improvements rather than the total size of the building. I've seen that in a number of leases lately and it's like time out guys. It's based on the size of the asset, not based on the size of the occupied space within the asset at the time or in general uh, at the time that you're doing the improvement. So those are things you have to watch. Landlords are trying to shrink the denominator to try to get a higher return or recovery on, you know, on those improvements. But I, you know, especially with like in New England right now in Boston, there's energy code. There's a stretch code code that's requiring landlords to do significant capital improvements to the um, to the HVAC system, that is going to be a difficult one because you may have a fully functioning, highly efficient system that if the landlord has to replace it because they're trying to get tax credits or they're trying to fill vacancy in a building to get to get permitting, then you're replacing something that isn't at the end of its useful life, and how do you recover that? And those those conversations, I think, are still TBD. This is super important, right? And if you are a tenant that's in a largely vacant building and you still have remaining lease term left, you have to be super aware that landlords uh, are going to be trying to take advantage of the situation, right? They may say, hey, you know what? This is a perfect opportunity where this tenant can't leave. They have to deal with the construction. I'm just going to improve my building for the duration. At the same time, if you're a tenant in a building and you're approaching the end of your lease term and it doesn't seem likely that you're going to stay, the landlord may be trying to pass through all types of capital that they possibly can so the building's in a much better position for them to lease it when you ultimately leave or downsize or, or whatever you may be doing. I think it's really important when you're negotiating a lease to make sure that when you're dealing with the majority of these um you know, mechanical, electrical, plumbing, like major building systems, uh, capital expenditures, things like that. You want to make sure that when you're signing the lease, that the landlord is providing some kind of warranty that those major building systems have a uh, remaining useful life that is at least equal to the initial lease term. And that if they do not, or for some reason, you know, that's not due to tenant's negligence, those systems no longer work, that it's landlord, uh, landlord's sole expense to fix. Um, and that could be replacing, it could be repairing, it could be 
a combination depending on you know what systems are at play um and that that is generally the market norm to get landlords to agree to that of course it it can become more challenging i mean i i would say that the only time that we're not consistently getting those are uh, when we're dealing with a non-institutional one-off owner, usually in an industrial setting, and there's a lot of competition for the building, and they're like, whoa, 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 I, I'm just a passive real estate owner. I won't take this risk. This needs to be the tenant's risk. Um, and I think that that's stupid and sort of a BS response, but they're able to lease their buildings anyways, because if you're a, you know, 10,000 foot, you know, plumbing parts wholesaler or something, and you might, you might just not have sophisticated real estate people helping you uh, mitigate this risk. Yeah. Now, and now that we're down this rabbit hole, I'm going to go one step further because I think this is super important. Uh, Brian, you bring up changing the denominator um, in passing through the um, capital costs of, of capital improvements. Um, it, that effectively puts the burden of vacancy on the tenant, not the landlord, which is crazy. Um, the landlord gets all the upside from their real estate investing and, of course, bears the burden of vacancy. It's up to them to get the place leased out. So there's one other example of that. I don't know who, who needs to hear this, but I, I've come across that a couple times recently with a gross-up provision and a triple-net lease. Like, no, no, no. Let's not be grossing up triple-net leases. And I've even heard the argument in favor of it, like to maintain services during vacancy. Again, that's the burden on the landlord of having vacancy. You can't shift that burden of vacancy onto the tenant. And I don't believe that there should ever be a gross up of a triple net lease so that the landlord ends up passing through expenses they didn't actually incur. It's just crazy. So let the world hear it. No gross up on triple net lease. But I think what he's saying is they want to take a cost and they want to gross that cost up as if fictitiously the building was fully occupied, right? So they're, they're taking the actual cost of a building, which you are absolutely required to pay your pro rata share of, grossing that cost up as if it was fully occupied, and then charging you a pro rata share of a fictitious number in the event the building was fully occupied. Your cost is a pro rata... Yeah, your cost yeah, is... for variable expenses. For variable expenses. Your cost is the actual cost. Like if, if it costs something, you pay your share of it. You shouldn't have to pay for a number if, for a tenant that doesn't exist. Just they're trying to, they're trying to burden the tenants with the cost of carry. They're, that's all they're doing is, is trying to get you to carry a space that doesn't have a tenant in it. For the listeners here, I mean, think about this. Think about you moving into a building where it's 50% vacant. You know, that, and if what John is talking about, Tucker, I think what he's trying to get to is if there is a gross-up provision, um, the landlord can then, for our listeners here that don't understand gross-up provisions, can estimate what that variable expense might be if the building had been fully occupied, but it's not. And so I think what John is suggesting, if it's a triple net lease and there's a gross-up provision, the building's 50% vacant, landlord's grossing it up as if it wasn't vacant, uh, now you're paying... Um, expenses on space that is sitting dark. There's literally nobody there. There's no lights on. There's no HVAC running. It is literally dark shell space, so to speak. 
And so landlord, it's a profit center. I mean, really, it's what it comes down to, I think. And maybe I'm misunderstanding John's point or Tucker, your point, but that's what I see what's going on. Yeah, you're paying expense on an expense that didn't occur. And I mean, it's just lunacy. I don't. I, and so I would love we'll get a landlord to come on the pod and we'll, we'll debate the topic. Um, maybe I'm missing something, but no, I don't think we should ever allow gross up under a triple net lease. Pretty clear to me. Okay, so I, now I need to clarify one more thing. And we may decide this is all way too wonky. The purpose of a gross up provision, in my opinion, is in a base year comparison method methodology for operating expenses, where the landlord is going to cover the very, all the expenses, including the variable expenses in the base year. The tenant is going to be responsible for those expenses as they increase over time over the base year amount. Used to be called an expense stop amount, and they would literally give you the dollar amount. So I can't think of a better way other than the base year comparison, the grossing up for the base year to then allow gross up in the base year and gross up in every subsequent year so that we're comparing apples to apples. I believe the purpose of a gross up is to ensure that there's a fair uh, base year amount, which becomes the basis on which all future expense increases will be based. I think that's the whole purpose of a base of a gross up. And I think sneaking it into a triple net lease is taking a familiar concept and applying it where it doesn't belong. To get back to what my original point was though, landlords are gonna start to try to do this in in a lot of different ways and i think construction of their buildings right so one thing that they'll they'll want to do is energy codes change these older buildings that need to be reinvented the exterior windows are probably not meeting current en- energy code so if they go to try to do a lobby renovation or i think even if they tried to do major tenant renovations it could trigger a code review of the energy codes for the building, right? So usually those are based on cost thresholds of a construction project within the building. So it could trigger them to have to do upgrades to the base building, including the exterior windows of the building. So in the example of the, the tenant I was talking to this morning, landlords do rewrapping the building with new windows. Their space at one point didn't have windows. Do they get a rent abatement or not, right? Can they use the space with boarded up? And then at certain times, the board's coming off of them installing new windows during the workday, right? So how do you deal with that? One, how do you partner with your landlord if you have a critical business within that building? Thankfully, this is office space. But what if you had, you know, in, in, in certain situations, tenants have office and labs, they have either either electronics labs or even more advanced labs in office buildings or in flex office buildings. How do you deal with that uh, potential disruptions of your of your operation, and how do you mitigate the cost? Because maybe a rent abatement means nothing to you if you know if your business and the value of your business is critical and you need to be there. So those are you know as you look at your leases and start to negotiate leases. I think, you know, the average broker right now is like, oh, we need to get financials from our landlords. We need to make sure we have an SNDA. Well, a more advanced broker and someone who's been through uh, real estate cycles is going to start to dig into tax and operating expenses and start to really understand how they're operating the building and how the lease is structured to make sure that you're not put in a position that that um, is a disadvantage to you if something changes. The other one is these capital improvements and how landlords can go about, you know, they sneak these in. There's stuff where it, the lease allows landlords to do improvements if it is to the benefit of the tenant, right? If the energy costs are going down, that's a benefit to the tenant. They're allowed to do that. Well, 
it's very disruptive and it's and it's very um, costly. So do tenants really want to be required to pay for those types of improvements um, or are they just not predicting those costs? So, you know, you just be having visibility is the most important part. So I think you really need brokers are really important right now in terms of how we dig into all of the what ifs in in leasing, especially in a market like it is today. Brian, earlier today, you were telling us a little bit about an active deal that you're working on, you know, client uh, in a sublease wants to add term on the back end. This is a conversation that people are having all around the country, right? You find a really competitive, uh, attractive sublease. It might have two or three years of term left. You might have a company saying, that's not enough time. I don't want to be in a position where I don't have certainty to stay beyond that initial sublease period. I'm going to go try and do a direct deal with the landlord on the back end. Uh, I think our listeners would love to hear about that experience and any recommendations you have for effectuating those kinds of transactions. Yeah, thanks, Tucker. It's it's a really interesting, uh, and you summed it up very well, a really interesting situation, right? So we've approached the owner ahead of completing the sublease saying, you know, what would you, what would you, um, uh, propose for an extension beyond a 2027 expiration on the sublease. So the sublease rent, and this is a class A building, is roughly $40 a square foot, as is furniture and everything in place. And this is a large deal, a couple hundred people. Um, so it's a material size deal for the building. We go to the, to the landlord and their initial offer is $80 a foot for a 2027 start for a three-year extension beyond the sublease term. The rents that they're proposing, and that's an as-is $80 a foot. Um, so the rents they're proposing, if you look at it on a net return basis to the owner, is effectively the same pro forma that they would have offered prior to COVID and prior to the current in- environment we're working in today. The challenge is, is that this is a space that's fully built out. There's probably $300 a foot in CapEx that we're avoiding because we're getting furniture, we're getting a fully built building. There's some minor modifications, but we, you know, we're in a position where this space makes a lot of sense to us. And the landlord is really trying to take advantage of that. If, um, you know, if this was a new tenant market deal, they would never move into a, a space at $80 a square foot. So, um, the, on one side, the CFO is saying, like, we need cost security, right? We need lease term to amortize our own co- equipment and just the build that we're putting into the space. Three years is a very short amortization period for our CapEx, even as low it is, as it is. It's still very short. We have no cost cost security beyond the three-year sublease term because we don't have renewal options and we have no, you know, no mechanism to remain in the space. So is it better for us? The question we were asked, is it better for us to just wait and roll the dice or is it better for us to play ball at the landlord's number, even though we know it's above market because our sublease allows us to blend it together. So an 80 and a 40 is a $60 blend over say six years versus, you know, a 40 and maybe that 80 becomes 70. But it also could become 90 if, you know, if market conditions change. And this, this is a real difficult situation and there is no right answer. It's, but it's one where I think what we're doing and we're doing it, uh, this morning, I have one of my partners out. We're going to some direct 
landlords, and we're going to look at a competitive piece of space that is built today but doesn't have plug-and-play sublease, and we're going to try to negotiate a direct deal in this environment on a long-term basis. And we're going to compare that deal to a blended sublease where we have no leverage. So we're trying to front-load the leverage for direct vacancy today and see if we can get a particular landlord to play ball. And that combined deal with you know, with a de landlord, how does that stack up to doing a sublease with a wrap on the back end with a landlord who thinks he has a captive tenant? And that's, I think that's the strategy that we're going to undertake because it's really our only option um, given the situation. Yeah. I think when you say there, there's no right answer, really it's, there's, there's no right answer uh, because there's incomplete information if we knew exactly what was going to happen with the market, then it would be very easy to decide on a company by company basis uh, what each person should do. And for these larger, more established companies that look at a three-year sublease that's fully furnished, moving ready, uh, has no capital cost of moving in, they look at the three-year term as a as a detriment and not a benefit. Right? They're in this interesting situation of what do you do? Um, because it's it's no guarantee that you're going to be a captive tenant at the end of the, at end of three years, right? I mean, if you had done this before and you're coming off of a three year sublease right now, no landlord is going to think you're a captive tenant. They're going to think these people might relocate, go to a really affordable sublease that may also be fully furnished um, and require no capex. It's just a matter of what's the sublease inventory going to look like in 2026, 2027, right? I mean. In many markets, we've already seen the amount of sublease space coming down, even though the market's struggling. And it's not as if that space is necessarily being subleased or leased. The master leases are just expiring. And now it's no longer available as a sublease. And foolishly, many of these landlords are still requiring tenants to move their furniture, remove their cabling, and creating an environment that's no longer plug and play. So uh, it is it is really to, in, interesting to think about uh, and try and, like, sort of craft some sort of hypothesis for each individual client of what's going to make the most sense for you. Uh, if only we had a crystal ball and knew exactly what uh, all of these different factors were going to be three years from now. It also sounds like a little bit of a transactional mismatch. I mean, the, you don't often see the large, long-term, stable, largest companies playing in the sublease space for that reason. Um, you know, when Apple Apple keeps expanding here in San Diego, they're not jumping around and doing all these little subleases. They're making big bold moves and they're signing long term direct leases. Um, you know, if, if your if your group is worried about the amortization period for that capital expense, it just feels like they 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 fit in a direct lease with a a landlord. Um, hard for them to play in that little nimble discounted sublease game. Totally agree for many large companies, but I would tell you some of my largest clients, given that it's. 300, one of them, it's up to $500 a foot. They don't think it is prudent, both from a cost perspective, but in, from an environmental perspective, not to consider space where they don't have to gut it or it's been gutted and rebuild it. It's a real big deal now from an environmental sustainability perspective to take space that's already, that's already built. It's 50 to 70, I think it's 50 to 70% less impactful from an environmental perspective to take space that's been built than it is to build new space or gut space and pull it. So, so there's, there's bigger issues at play and they, they want to look and we're going to go look at doing a direct deal, right? But 
they want to say like, look, we're not going to walk away because it's complicated or it's challenging. We want to try to utilize what's there. Then we can celebrate that we're moving into space. That's that someone else built and we're not spending all this money on the CFO side, but also spending all this, um, you know, making this environmental impact to go build space in a market where there's lots of space that's built. So that's, that's the, the, the drivers behind it, which I thought was, um, you know, I think it's unique in terms of my whole career and thinking that way, because you're right, John, in the past, they make large strategic moves and they just, they do it their way. And the big companies just, you know, like, this is what we do. This is how we do it and get out of our way. But that's, I feel like that's changing uh, today. That's good to hear. Great company. Yeah, guys, the, the challenge, though, with this, uh, Tucker talked about subleases going away because because some are expiring. The other thing that I'm seeing across the country, for that matter, is um, the good stuff is, is leasing. You know, when you bring these high-quality subleases to the market that are beautifully built out, more often than not furnished, um, and to Brian, your comment, you know, someone spent $500 a square foot, uh, whether you're doing a direct deal or a sublease, those are the spaces that are actually moving right now. Um, I see the stuff that's like second generation kind of commodity office space, if you will. That's the stuff that just lingers, sits, doesn't lease, then goes back to the landlord. And then the landlord, you know, maybe robs furniture from it to go furnish some other space. And it just kind of becomes now vacancy. But um, it's interesting because, you know, you look at a sublease market. I have a client right now that I'm helping um, move into a sublease that's probably one of the nicest subleases in Seattle. Um, and it was actually somewhat challenging to find something that was so spectacular to that, which we're, we are going to be subleasing. Um, and, and to that sub landlord's benefit, they've had quite a bit of success with disposing some of their space, but all of the other spaces out there for the most part, um, wasn't even close to being on par. Now, granted, my client has very high standards, so we're looking at class A plus premium space. Um, but it's just funny when you survey the market and, you know, my clients from the East Coast and they're just like, wait a second, I'm seeing a third of all office space in Seattle is available either on a direct or a sublet basis. Yet you're telling me that there's only this many options. Um, and I'm like, well, based on your taste yes right you're you're looking for 500 square foot space with ff and e that probably costs another 50 on top of that so ff and e being furniture fixtures and equipment of course um interesting world right now so hey owen how big is that requirement approximately Thirty-five thousand square feet okay one of the interesting things that that i found is i think that in in many markets there's disproportionately less attractive uh, furnished move-in ready spaces that are smaller than larger, right? And you, you yeah. think about the the mechanics of that. Why why has this happened? And, you know, the average lease duration that a 3,000 or 5,000 or 10,000 square foot tenant is very different than a company that's signing uh, for 100 or 200 or 500,000 square feet. Most of those leases are much longer term. And if those tenants are subleasing, they generally still have uh, meaningful years left on, on the master lease. Uh, not only that, I think that for a lot of these smaller companies, if you're in 3,000, 5,000 square feet, it was very binary of, hey, we either sublease the whole space and leave or we sublease none of it and stay. And for a lot of these larger companies, I mean, you think if you're a high-rise tenant, just to make it a really easy example, and you're in 20 floors of space, and you know you only need 15, well, it's really easy to just sublease five of those floors. 
So I, I, I find that the larger your requirement is without going over, you know, probably a hundred thousand feet, maybe even 50,000 square feet that the, the sweet spot for getting really high quality space, uh, particularly if you're more of a creative user, it, it's not 250,000 square feet and it's not 5,000 square feet. It's more like, you know, 30 to 50, maybe even 60, 70,000 square feet in most of these markets where the best sublease options still exist. You think of companies like OpenAI just signing this 400,000 square foot sublease in the San Francisco area, right? In a matter of five years, the company uh, who they subleased from Uber, their Uber is just going to have right sized the real estate and not be carrying a sublease anymore. So in time, these subleases aren't going to exist. Those opportunities are going to be gone. And you're just going to be looking at which of these direct spaces do I lease? And I think that's going to be really challenging for a lot of these companies, just given the cost to construct space and the cost to buy furniture. Uh, absolutely. And the other piece of, and I think you make great points, Tucker. The other piece of this is, and I'm dealing this with a client right now who made a brilliant move as they're contemplating the design of their space to take a 200,000 foot um, design and, and put it on hold and work with the business units to redesign it where each individual floor can stand on their own. Because what I think what the challenge is in these larger requirements is that it's designed as an envelope where they, they put and they force amenity spaces and um, spaces that attract groups of people uh, away from their desks together. And they put them in particular clusters, either on an amenity floor or an amenity area on a floor, which creates space on the other floors that really is difficult to stand on their own. So as you go look at, you know, Uber has 400,000 feet, you want to take a floor of that or two floors of that, you you will go into that space. And I see this with Microsoft Space in some markets that I've toured uh, fairly recently. It It's not great space, even though... It's a their build out is very high end. What you're looking at is their commodity space that's not amenitized. That's not because it's only a piece of this larger envelope that provides the overall overall experience for their people very differently than if you peeled away a floor or two. So my client um, made a, a brilliant decision to redesign this building. So if they did decide to make a change, each floor could be leased independently. And would have the um, the design to support a company on its own, which I don't think, in by and large, is something that the industry has done um, overall. Why? Well, hey, let's. That's been a good discussion. Let's switch gears here. I got some news um, I want to share with people. <coughs> um, it's consistent with some of our previous conversations. I think on our earlier podcast, maybe it was like podcast, gosh, four or five. I talked about the federal government having just returned from a trip uh, back then from DC and how much space was available and how gutted downtown DC seemed to be during lunch hour. Like nobody was down there. Uh, well, last week it was reported that if you think your company or companies are struggling to fill office space, you got to just take a look at the federal government. Um, it's quite astonishing, but they are actually, um, their, their success in getting people to come back to work is the lowest across the country. Worse than, you know, say, say even the technology companies that have really embraced hybrid work. Um, what's shocking is that this is, you know, we're talking 270,000 workers um, that work at federal agencies that just don't go to the office. 
Um, and what's disappointing for me as a taxpayer, and I don't want to make this political, but we spend $2 billion a year, $2 billion, operating buildings that our government owns. These are office buildings, okay? We spend an additional $5 billion leasing office space from private investors. Um, so think about that, folks. That's $7 billion we're spending a year on office space that largely is unoccupied. Um, and so you know, maybe the fact that majority of that spend goes to spaces that we lease, if people are never going to come back to work, well, let's hopefully that you know we make smart decisions and let those leases expire. Um, but it's uh, whatever the normal becomes, we certainly need to right-size that spend because it's pretty astronomical, if you ask me. Um, and it was funny, you know, I, was re I went into this, this article, by the way, if you want to read it, it's in the Wall Street Journal, but um, I went in and dug in a little bit further, and it turns out that cities, you know, are having more success getting their people to come back to work, I'm talking about city employees, than our own federal government. And the article suggests uh, the reason being is that this, the mayors realize how critical office occupancy is, even if it's on a limited basis, to having a vibrant, safe downtown, um, as well as increasing the tax basis. And so what, and I completely agree with that, by the way, you know, I work in downtown Seattle and we've had our fair share of challenges, um, both in terms of getting people back to work in the city and then also just public safety and vibrancy of a downtown. And I've been, you know, constantly saying that in order to support all these retailers that really, in some respects, define these commercial office buildings, because as, as someone who's not in the industry, if, if you were to say, hey, what building do you work in in downtown? Odds are the person who's giving you that answer probably you know, says, oh, it's the building with such and such a restaurant on the ground floor or some store, right? I mean, in my world, we all know addresses, building names, et cetera. But for the average person, buildings are often defined by the retail. Um, and when you don't have people there from nine to five, eight to five, eight to six, whatever it might be, even on a hybrid schedule, three days a week, why would a retailer open up a store downtown? There's no revenue to support that. And I was talking to some landlords, um, over the past month and so, or so saying, Hey, you really got to activate your building. You've got to get these vacant retail spaces filled because it just feels like a ghost town when you're coming in offer the space you know, on a percentage rent deal, meaning that, you know, your goals are aligned with the tenant. If they don't make any sales, they don't pay any rent. And remarkably, I had a couple of landlords tell me, Owen, we're offering the space for free, literally for free, just to get the space activated. And they still can't get people to come downtown to open up a coffee shop or a sandwich shop or such. Um, so one other comment on this. So to go a little bit deeper, there was an, uh, a survey that came out, um, and it was in the paper today, actually, and it's it ties in with my comments about people going back to work and the federal government. The, the survey found that, and they polled like 2,100 workers, um, that 69% of people um, believe that the reason they're not going back to work is because their employer is requiring traditional work kind of expectations around the workplace. And so they started to dig in and say, you know, well, what, what is it that's, um, what's most important of all the things that you would like to have changed, even if you were to come back at any sort of cadence, what would that be? And this is what shocked me. 72% of the employees surveyed said they want a flexible dress code and they would be enticed to come into the office more if they could choose to wear clothing of their own styles. 
And I thought that was like, wow. And so then they went, the, that Gallup survey then said, okay, well, what are people wearing? Like today, what are people wearing to the office? And 41% of people are required to wear business casual, 31% uh, wear streetwear, uh, and then the other uh, quarter or so wear uniforms. Only 3% of the workforce today is actually wearing a suit to work. That's astonishing relative to when, you know, my parents and my grandparents used to go to the office. But, you know, I'm looking at this going, okay, that's clear clear evidence of what the pandemic had done to our workforce where people got to work from home, proverbially speaking, in their pajamas. Um, not to suggest they were actually in pajamas, but I'm sure in some cases they were. But call me old school. But when you're in the office, I'm a firm believer, even when you're at home, Casual dress leads to casual thoughts. And I'm not suggesting we need to be wearing suits to work. I don't wear a suit to work myself. Um, but business casual is okay to be expected, in my opinion. And that's just, you know, some might disagree that you want to wear flip-flops and sweatpants, whatever. Um, but I just thought that was kind of astonishing. Just the other little comment on what people want. Obviously, commute was a big one. And that was the second one behind uh, attire was... I'm spending, you know, on average, the average American apparently spends about 51 bucks a day between food, parking, transportation costs, and they, by and large, want their employers to pay for that. I don't disagree with you, Owen, except if if I was to walk across the the bridge here into Cambridge and walk around and see some of the students, which, you know, MIT and Harvard students, some of the most brilliant minds probably of this next generation, Many of them are in flip flops and sweatpants and a hoodie. So it's, it's. My, my kids are wearing Crocs right now at school. Okay. So I get it. I'm, call me the old guy. Um, I see what my kids wear to school every day and it's Crocs and, you know, these, anyway, those flip flops. I don't even know what they're called, but I'm clearly out of touch on that kind of stuff. But yeah, I, I know. I know. So that might be part of it. But I think just to touch on, uh, you know, the federal government's in a really difficult position and I don't even have a comment on that, but I will take it back to the local level, the state of Massachusetts. And, you know, I think maybe this is an issue with the federal government. If you go into any city and I've done work in, in, almost every state and we go into these cities the 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 state and city governments are really usually uh and especially in tertiary and secondary markets they're one of the biggest users if not the biggest users of downtowns and that's how governments have been able to revitalize downtowns is to bring their workers there first right um but you get into these larger cities and you walk around and you look for like the class B or class C building and you point at it, you're probably pointing at a building that has city workers, federal workers, or state workers. They are typically in the cheap kind of part of town, the cheapest building, and they don't improve the space. So would you want to go back to work? I mean, if, if, I mean, you just sat on, sat on a panel on how the quality and the activation of the space, and I'm not putting words in your mouth, but it's, I believe that's what it was about. It really impacts people coming back to the office. The government spaces have been awful and they continue to be awful. And I will give credit to the state of Massachusetts. They're in the market. They are the third largest tenant in the market today. Currently, they're in some pretty crappy buildings. They're the lar- third largest tenant in the market today, and they're looking at some really high-quality buildings What, based upon what I know their short list is. Hopefully, they don't just renew in place and cheap out, but 
they're looking at some really nice buildings to improve the quality of the assets their employees work in. And that would be pretty exciting, one, for them, and two, for the city to see them move out of these these buildings that really should get torn down and turned into residential or something else um, and move to more of the core with everybody else. So um, that's my thought on it. If any of you have been to D.C., um, it's hard to miss if you're walking around you know, the FBI's headquarters. It's one of the, pardon me to the FBI, one of the ugliest buildings in downtown Washington, D.C. Um, and, you know, to your point, Brian, they are obviously, if you're going to the office there, you're probably not that inspired. Well, you might have read earlier this month, um, or sorry, last month, it would have been November, um, that they've chosen to move the FBI out of D.C. They're going to Greenbelt, Maryland. Um, it's a vacant lot where they're going to be building a brand new state-of-the-art facility. You know, great. I think that's wonderful. We all need the FBI. They're certainly a critical part of our national security. Um, they'll still maintain a small presence downtown. Um, but maybe that's what we need to do. Maybe pe- maybe the government needs to follow the path of the FBI and say, you know, we need these, these people obviously need to be in the office because they're doing critical security work that's for keeping us safe. Um, and so they're following that kind of thesis, Brian, where they're moving out of D.C. and moving to Greenbelt, Maryland. And people are pretty frustrated by that, um, especially the D.C. mayor and obviously the state of Virginia, which wanted them to come to, to their own state. Um, but we might see more of that uh, to follow. I don't know. We'll see. I think I've got a great segue um, with the FBI moving out of the uh, D.C. into um, Greenbelt, Maryland. I don't know where Greenbelt, Maryland. Is that the name of a city or is that just a... Uh... So... Um, yeah, I think that's a perfect segue. I did a little um, homework over the weekend and played around in CoStar, uh, which is full of data. Um, and I, I just wanted to see what I found. So I, I ran a report of availability rates across the country. And, you know, there's something like 500 submarkets defined. And I realized that the size of the market matters. I mean, the, the biggest market is New York City, 979 million square feet of inventory, almost a billion square feet of inventory. The smallest market, as defined in CoStar, is Hinesville, Georgia, total market size, 516,000 square feet. Okay, so what happens if we start to slice and dice that data? I organized um, from largest to smallest and broke it out into four tiers. Tier one, um, a, a market that has 100 million square feet or more of total inventory. Tier two, 20 million to 100 million square feet of total inventory. Tier three, 5 million to 20 million square feet of inventory. And tier four, under 5 million square feet of inventory. So when we group those together, now we look at the average vacancy rate. What do you think is going to happen here? Average vacancy rate, tier one, 16%. Uh, not vacancy rate, availability, average availability rate, tier one, 16%. Average availability rate, tier two, 10%. Average availability rate, tier three, 6.5%. Average availability rate, tier four, 5.5%. Okay, super interesting, I think. Um, Is it perhaps that the biggest problem is occurring in the biggest markets and maybe like small town America isn't seeing the same sort of office market upheaval. Maybe. Um, Sarah, my wife said, no, it's obvious. That's where all the companies in the big cities, that's where all the employees where they're allowed to work from anywhere. They've moved to those places. I'm not sure if that's it or if it's always been this way. Um, Okay. So uh, I wonder if small town America is immune to so much of what we're talking about in this office upheaval. Um, and here's just a few more ways I sliced and diced the data. Um, uh, 
the highest availability rate, top 10, they're all from t- the tier one markets, except for one. Uh, Stanford, Connecticut is number nine. That's from the tier two. Um, everyone knows it's sort of San Francisco, Houston, Denver, Dallas, Austin. Okay, pause. Interesting to note, three of the top five are in Texas. Um, continuing on, uh, Washington, D.C., Chicago, San Jose, Stanford, Atlanta, ranging from 26% in San Francisco down to 19% by the time you get to Atlanta. Um, okay, then one other way to slice and dice the data that came out of this CoStar report was um, net absorption uh, prior 12 months, which is pretty interesting to look at. Like, are we leasing our way out of this problem yet? Or... Because you know, net absorption can also be a negative number, meaning there's an increase to total inventory occurring over the last 12 months, which means we're still plowing into the problem. The problem is getting worse, not better. So uh, best net absorption over the prior 12 months, um, Houston, close to 900,000 feet of positive net absorption. Harrisburg, PA, Green Bay, Wisconsin, Huntsville, Alabama, they're all around four or 500,000. Grand Rapids, Michigan, Omaha, Miami, Tulsa, Sioux Falls, and Northwest Arkansas had 330,000 feet of positive net absorption. But then we get down to the other end and the bottom 10, all negative numbers um, from leading up to the worst, unfortunately, San Francisco at negative 9.6 million square feet. But the, those top 10 are uh, of worst are Philadelphia, East Bay, uh, Bay Area, California, Denver, Washington, D.C., Atlanta, Seattle, L.A., Chicago, New York. San Francisco, ranging from 2.2 million negative square feet of negative absorption in Philadelphia to, to the to the 9.6 million I mentioned in San Francisco. So just really interesting to look at the data. My main point being this idea that small town America seems like uh, the availability rate's been pretty consistent and they're not seeing a big spike like we're seeing in the big cities. So maybe the biggest problem is only occurring in the biggest cities. What do you think? Yeah, it, it would be really interesting to go a few layers deeper. I mean, I have some initial gut reactions. I mean, you think about why is availability so low in these sort of small town uh, America cities. And I think it's probably a, a function of how much inventory has been built over the last 10, 20 years. I mean, the three Texas uh, markets that you're referencing uh, by most standards from, uh, you know, investors and allocating, you know, capital to Texas, building new products, people would say those are some of the hottest markets in the country over the last 10 years, just because of the um, sort of uh, like positive momentum that Texas has had as a state during COVID and, um, you know, attracting high quality businesses to the state and all that and manufacturing in Mexico, things like that, they've contributed to Texas doing well. I mean, I think it could just be purely a function of, how much how much a new product has been delivered over the last 10 years and it may be that in small town america there's basically been no product that's been delivered i mean it depends how small town america are we talking i mean i think you know in your like tier 4 cities like not 100% sure how that's defined but it's possible that that includes cities that have a half million square feet or a million square feet of office space and that's it and you start thinking about how much of that million square feet is the you know, just basic uh, local services like people supporting the fire department and police department and the, you know, city administration building and things like that. It's like you may remove half the office space just to, for, you know, government, local government purposes. So, yeah, I'd be really interested to, to understand 
that better. But those are my initial reactions and uh, not surprised by the data at all. Obviously, small town America also has a lot less exposure to technology companies going and working from home. I agree with you, Tucker. The other piece that I was thinking about in listening to the statistics is the the risk profile of developers in secondary and tertiary markets are is very different, right? So I was down in Atlanta touring, and we drove by, I want to say, three. It had to be 300 to 500,000 foot spec office buildings under construction with no tenants. So these larger markets like the, the Dallas or the Houston or the Austin markets saw a massive amount of speculative development. Atlanta, San Francisco, you see these markets that are the risk profile for developers are very different. They can get their, their debt financing. They can line up investors. They could sell the dream into these high growth markets in the middle America in slower growth markets. You need a, a, a anchor tenant or more, right? So you need 50, 60, 70% pre-leasing before you can kick off any development. Um, so there's way less development. There's way less risk in, in the development pipeline. And it makes a much more stable environment that doesn't have these wide swings through, you know, through um, economic cycles or, uh, you know, or through this COVID cycle that we're in today is my thought. So interesting, John. Thanks for dicing that up, though. It uh, it certainly it, it, it certainly creates a good conversation around, um, you know, the other piece I was thinking, a good conversation around people in these major cities are way more disrupted. It costs way more to go to work. Right. What is it in, to take the train from the suburbs of Boston downtown? It's hundreds of dollars a month. If you drive, they just they're delivering a brand new building here for State Street in a company called InterSystems. They're moving State Street's moving in right now or moved in. InterSystem moves in over the next um, 12 months. Unreserved parking in the building is six hundred and fifty dollars. Reserve parking, eight fifty. Right. So the, so. You're an employee, and you're going to be asked to come to work at State Street five days a week, and they're going to ask you to pay six hundred and fifty dollars, or you're going to spend three or four hundred dollars to take the train, depending upon depending upon where you come from. You go out and get a salad; it's twenty dollars in big cities. Right, it's twenty twenty five dollars for lunch with a coffee. Um, you know, so these costs. Then you got to go, Owen. Owen, you got to go get a suit, or you got to go get business casual for sitting at home in your, you know, in your pajamas or some some activewear that you're wearing to the gym, and also you know wearing on on a Zoom call. You start adding all those costs up in major cities. It's really expensive to work in them. In these smaller cities, you go. It's free parking. You know, you're wearing basically the same clothes you wear on a Saturday to work because most of the most of those companies are all laid back and more casual. It's just a much less expensive experience to go to work in in secondary and tertiary markets. Is my thought. You can still solve for it in a city, though, Brian. You can just there's plenty of places around Seattle where there's office buildings that have free parking. Um, I agree. Downtown, anywhere, USA is expensive to park for the most part. Um, but if you need to be a Seattle tenant, San Francisco, Boston, New York, LA, you can find spaces. Now, granted, you're not going to be in city center. Um, but if you want to afford your people the opportunity to drive to work, um, not pay for parking, 
yeah, you may not be downtown, but in my experience, you can get pretty close to downtown and still solve for those things. And I, I see why that's the big second biggest item um, that people are you know claiming is resisting them going to work. I mean, if, if the average cost to go to work every day truly is $51, and that's what people are suggesting based off of transportation costs, uh, food, whatever. I mean, that's, that's a lot of money. It's a thousand bucks a month, um, or so, you know, it depends on how many type days you go to work. So, um, I get it. Right. So if that's what your employees are telling you, then maybe it's time to start looking at leaving downtown and being in a tertiary market where you, people can drive to work for free. Um, yeah, this is something to think about. Okay. Super interesting pod, a range of topics, some healthy debate today. Uh, Thanks so much, everyone, for listening to episode 25, and we will be back uh, very soon with episode 26.